A great philosopher of the internet once said, Always be yourself, unless you can be Batman. Always be Batman. While neither of us are Terry McGinnis and will likely never be Batman, we can live vicariously through him in his many comic adventures. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. My name is John. My name's Dylan. And today we have joining us from our friends at Views from the Gutters, Cade. Go ahead and say hello, Cade. Hello there. Welcome to the show, man. Glad to have you on. Very Thanks. cool. It's, it's our, our first time doing a uh, guest for Bat Books for Beginners and our first time doing a guest for a regular podcast, non-movie episode in either of our podcasts. Exactly. And this episode is going to be episode 135 where we cover Arkham Asylum Living Hell. So Dylan, why don't you give us the summary? In the halls of Arkham Asylum in days of yore, a familiar doctor drains the madness out of a criminal's head through trepanning. Unfortunately, it does not work as expected, and the patient dies. We find out later he had done this in order to trap the demons of insanity into the earthly vessel. Meet Walt, I I mean Warren, the great white shark. Really? Again? Yeah. Again with the Breaking Bad. Yeah, White. Yeah, hey, Warren White, Walter White, criminal. Close enough, right? Are, are you trying to prep me so that when we finish doing this podcast, we start a revisiting Breaking Bad podcast? You know what? Yes. Yes. I, I hadn't thought of that. We're doing that. Uh. <laughs> Where was I? Oh, yes. Meet Warren the Great White Shark White. Say that ten times fast. No. White collar criminal and stock trader extraordinaire. He has just been given the verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity. You see, Mr. White was on trial for committing the greatest act of stock fraud in American history. Thinking he was being clever, he had a location on the trial move to Gotham. What Warren doesn't realize is Gotham is home to the notorious Arkham Asylum for the Criminally Insane, a location Warren has never even heard of. The judge, who is visibly frustrated with the jury's decision, remands Warren into the care of the doctors at Arkham and he is taken in a prison bus along with a bunch of costume villains to the facility. Warren is assigned to the room with Death Rattle, a former cult leader and serial killer who claims to be a psychic. After an impromptu run-in with the Joker, Warren runs to the prison psychiatrist, Dr. Carver, and convinces her that he is sane. The doctor tells Warren she can recommend him to a minimum security prison for the cost of $20 million. Warren agrees and makes the arrangements. Once the money is transferred, however, the Doctor attempts to murder White, but is saved by Batman. The Dark Knight reveals that Carver is actually Jane Doe, an inmate at Arkham who kills her victims and assumes their identities. During the fight, White is thrown into the wall, and the decapitated, skinless head of the actual Doctor lands in his lap. Mr. Cash, a security officer who has had his hand bitten off by Killer Croc, mourns the loss of Dr. Carver, whom he had an unrequited love for. He later interrogates Doe as to the location of Dr. Carver's body. Meanwhile, White finds out that because it was Doe impersonating the doctor, his transfer is null and void. The Mad Hatter taunts Two-Face with a mirror, causing Two-Face to smash the mirror with his bare hands, causing lacerations. During lunch, Scarecrow stabs White with a fork, and both are sent to the infirmary to treat their injuries. Humpty Dumpty, a nonviolent criminal with an obsession with putting things back together, is tasked with reassembling the mirror Two-Face broke to make sure no pieces are missing. 
In the infirmary, the doctor encourages White to hitch his wagon to one of the more powerful inmates. To this end, White becomes the personal coin flipper of the now-bandaged Two-Face. That night, Death Rattle threatens to kill White, and with a flip of a coin, Two-Face informs White that he is on his own. Humpty Dumpty steps in and gets the guard to transfer White into his cell. Doodlebug, a villain who was brought in earlier in the story, is revealed to be the one who stole the shard of glass during the lunchroom Donnybrook. Donnybrook? Yes, Donnybrook. Donnybrook. He has a guard loop the cameras and escort him to the women's section of the prison. While there, Doodlebug delivers the shard of glass to Magpie, a criminal with an obsession with shiny things, and the two enjoy a conjugal visit. Meanwhile, we are given Humpty Dumpty's tragic backstory, including how he was brought in by Batgirl. After Humpty finishes his tale, White asks why he is saving him, and Humpty says that because White is the worst person he's ever met, and believes that he can fix White. After letting Doodlebug into the women's section, the guard visits Jane Doe, and she kills him and takes his identity. Outside of Arkham, in the police morgue, numerous mutilated bodies are inspected, and Jason Blood reveals that the slaughters are of an occult nature, with all the victims having committed the same sin. Jane Doe, now on the skin of the prison guard, starts setting prisoners free. The other guards do not see any of this happening as the camera is still on a loop. Doe goes into White's cell under the pretense of protecting him, but subdues him and takes him to Mr. Freeze's refrigerated cell. We see Dr. Arkham in his house, while he, where he is concerned by the lack of calls from the prison. After a few minutes, he gets his gun and heads to Arkham to check things out. Inside the asylum, Officer Cash attempts to contain the chaos but Joker and Two-Face manage to escape in the bedlam. Cash runs into Killer Croc, causing him to have a flashback about when he initially lost his hand. Just as Croc charges Cash, Dr. Arkham shoots him with a trank dart. In an effort to regain control, Cash and Arkham initiate a protocol to release knockout gas throughout the prison. Poison Ivy and Magpie attempt to pull an Andy Dufresne and tunnel out of the prison. However, they break into a sub-basement. They go down the stairs and discover a pile of bodies within a chalk circle. As Ivy steps into the circle, she breaks a spell, and the bodies spring to life. The corpses rampage through the prison, adding even more chaos, while Jane Doe tells White that she must make alterations to her white skin suit. That's worn white, not the color. Putting on his skin, Doe exits the cell, only to encounter Humpty Dumpty, who tries to protect who she believes is to be Warren. We get a flashback of Doodlebug's history, with him murdering people to use their blood in his paint. Once the flashback ends, Doodlebug and his roommate, the scavenger junkyard dog, escape using the severed hand of J- Officer Cash. Almost said Johnny Cash. He didn't lose a hand, did he? I no, I think his brother did, didn't he? I I his don't, brother, I don't his know. younger brother died. Well, now that you brought everything back down. <laughs> hey The dog tries to escape, but Doodlebug rips his heart right out of his body and begins painting strange symbols reminiscent of those found on the victims in the morgue on the walls of Arkham with it with the blood alright I'll, I'll finish it out here <laughs> Dylan's having trouble with the word perpetrator <laughs> having deduced that the perpetrator of the murders is locked up in Arkham Jason Blood arrives and transforms into the demon Etrigan Etrigan battles the corpses but is subdued by Doodlebug Doodlebug takes a bag that Etrigan dropped containing tongues he tosses it to the corpses who take the tongues and put them in their mouths and are then able to speak Doodlebug orders the corpses to seek out inmates, and when they return, he sacrifices them. Meanwhile, White manages to escape Frieza's cell, but not before his nose is ripped off after he bangs his head against the floor and it became stuck. White finds Dumpler and rescues him from his demon. The duo move downstairs as Doodlebug summons his demonic master, Cthuga, 
Tathagen. Okay. Killing himself in the process. The corpses, wanting to negotiate with Cthulhu for return to the realm they belong, realize they have to speak in rhyme but are unable to do so. Also, Cthulhu will only stay on their plane of existence as long as they sacrifice people, of which they have limited numbers. White appears and negotiates to have Dumpler, who also speaks in rhyme, speak to the demon lord in their stead. While Dumpler and Cthulhu negotiate, Cash mounts a rescue effort for the remaining guards, who haven't been sacrificed yet. Dumpler is able to reach a deal with Cthulhu, and the corpses are returned to hell. The prisoners are returned to their cells, and the whole ordeal is blamed on Scarecrow's fear gas. As a new batch of criminals is delivered to the prison, including the recaptured Two-Face and presumably Joker, Warren the Great White Shark assumes a higher position in the food chain. Ending the, st- the summary and the story. So, so, Dylan, since I finished out the summary, why don't you start us with the first Education Alley piece there? Okay, for those not familiar, I'm going to marvel this. Education Alley is what we used to call our notes section. We turned it into Education Alley because it's a pun, educationally. So this is where we relay informa- uh, informative tidbits, interesting things, vocabulary, history, stuff like that. So the first one is the basis for Arkham Asylum, which is based off H.P. Lovecraft's Arkham Sanitarium. Lovecraft, who was a horror writer back in the 1920s, Arkham was based on the Danvers State Hospital. The land it was built on was the homestead for John Hawthorne, who was involved in the Salem Witch Trials. He pushed hard for the execution of the witches. The hospital started out as a model institution, but it grew to be too large. In the 1920s, it had 2,000 patients, which was four times the original capacity of the, for the facility. So, John, since you didn't know what Fathagon was, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft uh, is the guy who wrote, uh, who came up with the C- Cthulhu. I did know that. Yeah, so, uh, in the uh, Cthulhu mythos, uh, it, I, I can't recite the entire uh, line, but it's like Cthulhu lies dead and dreaming in the lost city. But Fathagon is one of the words in the, the famous saying about Cthulhu in the old tongue of the ancient exter- uh, exterior plane gods. Okay, that makes a little more sense now. Yes. <laughs> All of the things you think of when you think of a horror movie in an asylum started in the 1940s. Due to the overpopulation and understaffing, the employees resorted to solitary confinement, straitjackets, electroshock therapy, hosing down, and lobotomies. It was officially abandoned in 1992. In 2005, most of the buildings were demolished, with the exception of the gothic faca- facade of the Kirkbride, Kirkbride. Kirkbride building and the network of tunnels that were used to connect the various wings of the asylum. And if you want more information on that, um, I got most of this from the Lore podcast. Their sixth episode uh, is on the Danvers State Hospital. So that's a very good listen. It's about 20 minutes, so it's not too super long. So, so the next one is a, is a word you introduced in the summary that's not even in, in the story called uh, trepanning. But it, well, it is in the story. It's just not called that in the summary. Right. The word's not in the story, but yeah. the act is definitely there at the beginning of the story. Trepanning is a surgical intervention in which a hole is drilled or scraped into the human skull, exposing the dura matter to treat health problems related to intracranial diseases. It may also refer to any burr hole created through other body surfaces, including nail beds. It is often used to relieve pressure beneath a surface. A trefine is an instrument used for cutting out a round piece of skull bone, which he did not use a trefine. He no, used he used a, a, a steak, basically, and yeah. a mallet. He straight <laughs> vampired it. 
in ancient times, holes were drilled into a person who was behaving in what was considered an abnormal way to let out what they believed were evil spirits, which we, is what he was doing. Yeah, exactly what he was doing. So that's why I included in the summaries. It was the act. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, that's a good poll on your part. So uh, we're going to let Cade jump in here with uh, Hobgoblin. All right. So Hobgoblin, which uh, Jason Blood says the uh, there are inside the patient's head... Um, hobgoblins seem to be small, hairy little men who, like their close relative brownies, are often found within human dwellings doing odd jobs around the house while the family is lost in sleep. Such chores are typically small deeds, like dusting and ironing. Often, the only compensation necessary in return for these is food. Attempts to give them clothing will often banish them forever, Though whether they take offense to such gifts or are simply too proud to work in new clothes differs from teller to teller. It is possible that the hob in their name comes from the hob, a part of the hearth meant for holding food or utensils. The most famous of these are Puck from Midsummer's Night Dream, and I would say Dobby from Harry Potter. Dobby. Yes, Dobby. Now, so, interestingly, I mean, Dobby's a house elf. I mean, same same idea, very much. I don't know. Reading that description, I thought of Dobby no, immediately. No, you're not wrong, yeah. It, they're called house elves in the Harry Potter lore, but they're definitely, you know, by that description, brownies or hobgoblins. And, of course, when given clothes, they're free. So, yeah, that, that does kind of fit. That's crazy. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know that's what a hobgoblin was. My my uh, idea of hobgoblin is from Spider-Man comics. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> Spider-Man, I think Dungeons and Dragons, and neither is a good thing. <laughs> my first thought was actually Puck, but then again, I was raised on Shakespeare. Oh, so. lucky. Yeah, I mean, also the reading bar. the description, Puck fits amazingly well, and I, I just thought of him as a fairy. I didn't realize he was also a hobgoblin. Yeah, yeah same here. Isn't he a satyr, though? Or am I, I don't mis- think so. Am I misremembering? Do you, do you have a comment I, on that? I think it's, depending on who's reading it, I think yeah. it's told in different ways. That, and that's probably it. That's why that's probably why I'm thinking Seder. But once again, this is relying on my notoriously awesome memory. Yeah, and, and Midsummer's is probably my favorite Shakespeare play. It's, it's the one I've, I've seen or read the, the most. It's a great play. I think the movie that came out in the 90s, when I was a kid at least, um, he is portrayed much more Hobgoblin-like. Okay, I think I've seen that movie. I know I've seen a couple movie adaptations of, of the play. In issue six, we have the term Arbiter of Hell for Cathaga, a person empowered to, to decide matters or issues, a judge or an umpire. So, you know, uh, having a uh, consultant is another, would be a good uh, synonym for it. Well, the, the closest thing that I, that I would attribute it to is when uh, contracts go to arbitration in sports, where oh, yeah. basically an outside... Uh, source determines then because the team and the the player can't come to an agreement the outside source says this is what you'll make you know impartial so that's kind of the the way that i know the the use of the word arbiter in modern terms yeah yeah i think that's that's a good point and then dylan you brought this up to me yes. uh, i knew that great white shark this was his first appearance but you also found that this was humpty dumpty death rattle Doodlebug. Jane Doe, Lunkhead, and the Junkyard Dog. Dog. All of them, it's their first appearance in this story. Now, you were initially under the impression that these are like lesser villains, like Z-grade villains that got used for this story. Yeah, I mean, it, it's Arkham. Almost every villain of Batman's ends up there at some point, so I kind of thought that these would be just villains who happened to be in Arkham at the time. Well, what I thought was kind of cool is uh, 
Jane Doe, if you remember the Adam West, Adam West Batman series. The, the best Batman the series. The best. <laughs> Bar none. Christian Bell, suck it. It's Adam West all the way. Uh, False Face. She kind of reminded me of False Face, who, of course, the actor, I can't remember his name, but he had wanted nothing to do with the series. He wanted his name taken off the credits. For uh, I've read up on that. Yeah, because they used a plastic mask, kind of like a Guy Fox mask, but not uh, stylized. It was painted to look like a human face. Yeah. Um, and he didn't like that. He preferred when they their first attempt, I think it said in the article I read, that, that where they tried to use makeup to make him look a little different. You know, I, I, when I initially thought that, it almost made me think of uh, um, the question, how he has that blank face. But yeah, uh, Jane Doe, she also reminds me, I can't remember the name of the character, a deadpan from uh, Freakazoid. <laughs> okay, wow, that's a poll. I, I watched <laughs> that when I was a kid, but oh, I don't man. remember anything about it. You remember that at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I watched it. Uh, deadpan. She, she changed her face. Yeah, no, I actually watched a little bit of that last year on DVD. <laughs> yes, Freakazoid pool. Um, but yeah, you know, that, very, that very character who has no identity or uses a false identity, false face or mask like Jane Doe does. But yeah, that's instantly what I thought of was... Uh, was Freakazoid and uh, False Face from the original Batman series. Cool. And, and we'll come back to that uh, in a bit when we get to talking about the, the villains in this story. Rad. So I think that, that ends uh, Education Alley. So let's let's take a right turn out of Education Alley into the talking points. And we'll start uh, with a bad thing that I had that I think Dylan didn't agree with me. Did not um, agree. The, the plot contrivances in this story. And I, we kind of skipped it in the summary. Um, once Joker and Two-Face escape, uh, you go, you have an Arkham shows up at Jeremiah Arkham shows up at the asylum and and makes a phone call. He calls this uh, military person who National Guard. Ha- okay, uh, El- Alan Evan Ev- Evanella, I think it was. His, yes. his name is a palindrome. And Joker, as soon as he gets out, he, he t- brings Two Face along with him. He's like, I'm going to kill everyone in the phone book whose name is a palindrome. Which is very Joker. See, here's where I disagree with you. You think it's a bad thing? I think it's perfectly Joker. I think it's perfectly it Joker. Is- Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, it is perfectly Joker, but I th- I think that the story didn't need it. Okay. Yeah, see, that's exactly what I was <laughs> going to say, is it, it felt like they were adding a, a, an aspect to the story that wasn't necessary. I'm completely over having a guest host, because I don't like being outnumbered. This sucks. <laughs> I, I'm done with this. Uh, you're fired, Kate. <laughs> um, and, and so it, you go into this, this sequence of events where Evanella gets the call, and then... Uh, Joker shows up, hits him with, with, a, with a laughing gas dart or something, and then Batman shows up. So Dr. Arkham doesn't call anyone else because he thinks he's got help coming, but help, his help didn't get to call anybody because he got incapacitated Joker. by Joker. And then Batman shows up and doesn't get the message from Evanella because he can't talk. And so Batman then stays out of the rest of the fight. And it just seemed like if you're going to keep Batman out of the fight, just don't have him show up at all. Like it seemed like a, a contrived way to keep Batman out of the story, which he, he doesn't really need to be in the story anyway. I, I kind of disagree because I mean, this is a Batman book and there's not an Arkham series the way they did it. At least I agree. They could have had a one-off, you know, six issue story that was Arkham night in hell with no Batman ties aside from the fact that it happened in Gotham. They did it under a Batman book. No, this was a miniseries. What I thought was a Batman book. No, this was just. This is oh, exactly well. what you just described. Oh well, then that that changes my opinion. <laughs> Dang it! Stop it, guys. This is not fair. I don't like this anymore. Um, no, I, I think, I, I think you. Ha- they could have. I, I can agree that they could have done without having Batman in the book at all. They didn't need 
uh, Batman to save White. They could have had a security guard or somebody come in and save White. I, I think it is as far as the Joker goes, it's a very Joker thing to do. And I think if you're going to have Batman in the book, then it's a good way to keep Batman occupied. But I, I, I can see your point, as much as I hate to say it, that you're right. It tastes horrible in my mouth saying those words. This is my the favorite part of recording. Whenever <laughs> I can convince Dylan that I'm right. Dang it. It doesn't help that you had backup this time. Well, well why do you think we had Kate on? <laughs> I wanted a different view from the gutter's host. <laughs> it's not fair. No, um, all kidding aside, thank you again for joining us, Kate. Now get, co- get out of, of my house. <laughs> um... Uh, you, yeah, I think you, you could have had different ways to keep Batman out, and I have to—I I hate to say it, but I do agree that that it does come off as contrived. Once I realize that, yeah, you're right. But if you're going to have Batman show up, just even if just for the name recognition, or even just to have that character tied in there, so it kind of draws people in. Oh yes, Batman shows up. Uh, it does make sense as a way to keep Batman occupied. I, I will give you that. That Yeah, it is a way to keep Batman occupied. That makes sense within the context of the characters in the story. Yeah, but I don't think it was necessary. I think I think we've seen through other titles such as Gotham Central, which we'll come back to this when we're talking about the slice of life aspect of the yes. story, that you can have a title set in Gotham or set in Arkham Asylum that doesn't need Batman at all. The, the rest of the characters are so well fleshed out over the history of Batman that they can carry a title on their own and they don't need batman uh, as a sales bump and i i'd agree with you and say that that's both a, that actually makes both a good and a bad point the fact that you have they include batman becomes a bad point but the characters and we'll get back to this of course but in the good points but the characters are extremely fleshed out and extremely you know all of them are very striking and they all come across as very full fledged stand on their own characters yeah so that, that's really all i had for that one uh it's a very minor bad point to an otherwise good story. So yeah. uh, we'll move on to our next one here, which is about on the same level, I would say, that this book has an editor's note in it that this takes place before No Man's Land. Even though it's published after No Man's Land. Right. This Long was published after, in 2003, yeah. and No Man's Land was, was 2000. So it's three <laughs> years later. Think. No, 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 it was 2000. We did it, we covered uh, it. Oh, okay. a little while ago. Which is a, a, a beast of a story, but it's a, it has its good bad points. If you go listen to our coverage on that, yeah, I don't remember which episode that was. <laughs> Whatever one we started on, that was No Man's Land uh, yeah. Volume 4. I, I had to read it for the Stephanie Brown arc we did on View from the Gutters. We did her entire 12-year run. Oh, wow. wow. That, is, that is a lot. That's a beast. That sounds awesome, though. So the, the tie-ins to No Man's Land I found non-existent in this book. Like I originally thought, oh, Joker and Two-Face escaped. That's, that's the lead-in to No Man's Land. But we see at the end of the book... Two-Face is returned, and since Two-Face and Joker were together at the time Two-Face was captured, it's pretty safe to assume that Joker was also returned to Arkham. No, they split up. They were together w- at uh, Evan- Evanella. No, remember uh, Joker invited uh, Dent along, and Dent turned him down. Oh, okay. Well, I thought they were still together at that point, yeah, so maybe no, I'm Dent, wrong. Dent said uh, something like... Yeah, I remember Dent said that, but I thought he was still tagging along at that point with Evanella. So, okay, I'm wrong about that. Um, hey. so, <laughs> so Joker is still out, but Dent was out too for No Man's Land. So it, it really seemed like it was a contrived tie-in to No Man's Land. Unnecessary. And three years later. Yeah. Um, it, it, it was, and I didn't even 
see that editor's note and I didn't even put any of that together until I was coming on here and you had mentioned it and it was completely unnecessary I felt that this book stands without any other tie-in especially to a book like No Man's Land agreed and it, it just it seems like a akin with uh, the point of having Batman in the story it it's unnecessary it's just you know, it's not something you need to add or, or you need to throw in there, but you decide to do it anyway, and it just kind of breaks the flow and breaks the immersion. I mean, this is the type of story that really, there is no continuity aspect to it. There is no, this has to take place after such and such event or before such and such event. This could happen at any point in time. Exactly. Hey, Joker broke free. That's, all, that's, a, that's the thing that happened is, well, Warren White uh, becomes the Great White Shark and Joker's free again, which... You know the war and white thing will take uh, effect later on in the stories, and have a, a lasting effect. The character becomes a a menace and a threat to Penguin and, and Penguin's empire crime. But aside from that, it really doesn't add or change anything. Yeah, and that's not to disparage the story at all. It's just that it doesn't need to be set at a specific time. Now, John will have disparaging comments for the story later on, but that's all a totally different subject. Yeah, that, that's just my own personal opinion about the type of story. But those are the only two bad points that we really had. So we'll go ahead and move on to our good points here. And the first thing I want to bring up is the very end of the story with the cover-up. I really like this cover-up because it explains away the portions of the story that I didn't particularly care for, which is the mysticism and magic, which if you listen to our uh, our uh, Batman Evolution, I think it was, the Ra's al Ghul story that we did a couple months ago, yes. I had this same complaint about that one as far as mysticism and, and magic in, in my Batman stories. So I did like that the cover-up at the end kind of explained everything away as, as Scarecrow's fear toxin, which is something that you could possibly say is mysticism and magic, but I think more of a science. Well, I mean, yeah, obviously it's not the truth, but it is something that is explained away. It's what they used to explain it because having a full-on demon, demonic invasion in Arkham Asylum is a little beyond the pale. Now, mind you, for Arkham, it's not exactly outside the norm, but it's something that, you know, could happen. It's an element of Batman that I tolerate, but if I were to choose the story, type of story I want to read, this would not be one of them for that reason. And that's just, you know, that's just a preference. Now, now what are your thoughts on this, Cade? Um, well, I'm, I'm a firm believer in what's the, the, what's the saying that some people uh, put after uh, CSI, sci- Science is Magic? Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, was it uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic? Any... Uh, sufficiently explained magic is indistinguishable from science or technology. Yeah. Um, so, like, I guess when I think of the the cover up that of the scarecrow's toxin, I do think that it was. I I think that it's necessary for the story to keep it into continuity, but if if you look at the book as it could be an else world, since you don't really know where it fits in. Y- it's not really needed, but I think it was a good aftertouch. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that that made me appreciate the story more than if they hadn't done that. And, and I know you absolutely loved it, John, the uh, skepticism that Batman had for the, you know, yeah, yeah, right, it wasn't really Joker gas, but I'm not going to press the issue. Uh, scarecrow toxin. Or Scarecrow, yeah. Joker gas, Scarecrow toxin. Um, same thing. <laughs> same yeah, I was going to say, I don't think they're terribly uh, different like, in, like in chemically, effects. Yeah, chemically... <laughs> Chemical cousins, but the uh, just the the Batman skepticism as to it happening. But 
Yeah, I I definitely think that that gave it the uh, we're not just wiping this under the rug touch uh, that just if he did believe them, it, it kind of maybe would have had that feel of, oh, we're just wiping this under the rug and returning back to the status quo and nothing's going to change. I think the fact that he's skeptical is is good, but I also do like the fact that we aren't going to, from this, delve into a whole story of Batman trying to figure out what happened with the demons and everything. Well, and, you know, it, it is a kind of a self-contained story that really doesn't have much of an after effect at all. They killed off some, some villains that they had created for the story, and they, you know, nothing really changed in, Go- in uh, Arkham. Yeah, and, and I'm okay with that. I mean, not every story has to have lasting effects in the world. Um, and especially like a miniseries, which is something that, that DC hasn't really been doing since the post-Flashpoint universe started. Um, I was listening to the comics cast uh, from a while back, and they were talking about just after post-convergence that since post-Flashpoint universe started, we've had maybe two or three miniseries in... Uh, in DC's publications that haven't been tied in with an event from from something like Convergence or some of the other events. Um, also, another thing uh, that kind of ties into this, it doesn't have to, or I don't feel that the series has to have um, an explanation about the Batman thing because this is a Jason Blood demon story at uh, more so than it is a Batman story. Well, even being a Jason Blood story, he barely has any effect. <laughs> I mean, that, that's very true. I, really, if you think about it, what, what happens if you take Jason Blood out of the story, honestly? Uh, the demons don't get their tongues is about the only thing. Yeah, so uh, you, you could have mitigated that by having them, I don't know, rip the tongue out of some of the convicts or security guards at their sacrificing's head. But honestly, Potentially, unless they needed those specific tongues for whatever reason. Yeah, I don't know. It just seems like... And, and yeah, it's definitely a demon story, but I, I have to disagree on the Jason Blood portion because he really doesn't uh, have any effect. He he shows up, he figures it out, shows up, turns into Etrigan, and gets captured. And then tries to arbitrate, which I left out of summary for sake of brevity. But he's turned down, so it really didn't matter. <laughs> yeah. But it is good to see him show up. Um, he's I, a cool character. Yeah, and I don't feel that... A lot of Batman uh, readers really know who he is. Etrigan kind of shows up sometimes, not not a whole lot. I know uh, personally, and this is you know outside of the comic books, but I played me and my girlfriend played DC Universe Online, and Etrigan has parts in it, mostly in Gotham, mostly around the university. Well, Dylan, you and I on our other podcast, Arc Reactions, we covered Quiver from uh, um, Kevin Smith, and yes. Etrigan is a big part of that story, so we were familiar with him ahead of time. Yeah, but, but he, obviously that's not a Batman story. No, and, and you know he's a less. He's, I wouldn't say he's a lesser character, but he kind of is. He's like just not as used as prominently. He's oh, absolutely. Um, m- my main point is that uh, usually to get an Etrigan story, you need to go outside of the realm of the popular DC characters. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, Green Arrow is my favorite superhero, and Quiver is one of my favorite books. But um, for the like quote unquote casual Batman readers, they would not know who he is without appearances like in this book. Yeah, I can definitely see that because he's certainly not a headliner character, which is something we've talked about in some of the podcasts we've done before about what do you do with characters that can't hold their own title? And this is kind of what you do with them. They make these appearances every once in a while 
to just stay relevant. Or DC makes a book like Demon Knights when the New 52 first launched that was absolutely amazing and sad that it got canceled. The problem is, is in consumer culture and, and with comic books, if it's not the big names, even you know reaching as far as Green Arrow, Flash, outside the big three, it's really hard to draw an audience in. Even when you have phenomenal writing, you have phenomenal characters, phenomenal everything, it just doesn't have that same appeal. So you almost have to have uh, characters show up in the book like Batman. Or one thing I saw, I was bringing up, and I, I, I'm remiss because I can't remember exactly, but it was during the early 2000s where they had characters on covers that don't show up at all in the story. It's like I think it's like Wolverining or something to that effect because Marvel had a lot of comic books that had no Wolverine in them whatsoever, but Wolverine was on the cover to draw audiences in. Yeah, that's a whole other conversation. That's I think trope. we need to uh, table for another time. Okay, <laughs> that'll be fun to have. Um, but uh, the next good point that we had uh, was Humpty Dumpty. And I personally love this character much like I love Ventriloquist, which I know you don't <laughs> I, like. I am not a, fa- a fan of the Ventriloquist, but I am absolutely a fan of Humpty Dumpty. He's, uh, you know, for, for a non-villainous villain, you know, he, he kind of reminds me of Amygdala, but like less... Yeah, he, did, he is very similar to Amygdala in that you kind of have to have someone point him in a direction. But but he's he's like a non-violent, non aggressive amygdala he's a much more of a you know he's just trying to put things together and take them apart which is a really cool character yeah and i really like that dan slot who wrote this found a way to make him relevant and not just a joke villain he he's really more of a oh i had a word and then i just lost it catalyst um, he's a he's a more realist he has more realistic psychoses than most arkham inmates he you know belongs in the asylum because he is sick in the head in a more realistic way than most batman villains well and he definitely did some bad things but he didn't do them maliciously yeah that exactly what Cade was saying it's because of his mental issues that that he is there in arkham and he needs to stay there because he he can't control himself he takes things apart and puts them together, which the reason he's in there is he did that to his mean grandmother, which yeah, is and, kind of disturbing. And he thinks he's doing well by doing this. Yes. But he's also aware that he can't put them back together right, which is kind of an interesting contradiction. He has this compulsion to do these things and thinks he's helping, but he yet also knows that he's making things worse and not actually helping. I'm not sure that he knows he's making things worse, honestly. The way he was described, describing his backstory to White, you know, he's like, I, I fixed the train because it, cause it always ran past me, and now it doesn't run past me anymore. I fixed, you know, this, 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 and this. But he did realize that he fixed his grandma wrong. Yeah, he, he did have line a line or two in there saying that he knew he wasn't he wasn't able to put things back correctly. So it, it's, it struck me... Maybe I'm I'm interpreting a little bit differently than you are, Dylan. It struck me that he knew he couldn't put these things back together correctly, but he had to try. And I think your description, I'm, I'm not sure. I think it is open to interpretation a bit, but I think that your interpretation definitely makes for a very, very interesting, compelling character, even one who's not necessarily the big villain or really that much of a villain at all. I mean, we saw what, Amygdala in Nightfall, was it? As yeah. one of the like gauntlet things that Batman had to deal with before Bane broke his back, I'm yeah. pretty sure that's where we saw him. And he, this guy, strikes me as another one of those type of things where you include him in an ensemble book like Nightfall or No Man's Land as something that that 
for a couple issues keeps the hero busy and keeps him from doing other things and that's like his perfect role yeah what do you think Kate? <laughs> I mean, no, I, I absolutely agree. Um, I really like Humpty Dumpty as a character, um, and I felt that he was written in a way, it made him very realistic. He kind of made, it's a more human touch to uh, uh, many of the people in Arkham are not very human. True. Um, when you look at all the psychoses of the characters in Arkham, they're more super villain than they are crazy. Yeah. That's always, that's always uh, confused me in Batman stories is when does someone go to Blackgate and when does someone go to Arkham? Cause it seems like there's, there's not a real clear distinction of which of these people should be in Arkham and which of these people should be in Blackgate. Yeah. And, and Humpty Dumpty, I feel like is kind of a, a grounding character in that, not in that people can empathize with him, but so that people can see that there are people in Arkham with more human uh, psycho, uh, human craziness. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say that, that that's a good segue into our next point, which this book was a bit of a bit of a slice of life story for Arkham Asylum. And when you put characters like Humpty Dumpty in there that literally belong in Arkham, that it's not just a holding tank for super criminals, that this person is in Arkham, is working with the, the doctors in Arkham to hopefully get better and go back as a, as a productive member of society. But he needs to be there to get the medical help that, that he needs and keep everyone safe from the things that he does when he's out and he thinks he's being helpful I mean, th- this is this is what I was hoping this book would be, that we could see Arkham operating as it normally does. And we did for a few episodes, yeah, a few it, issues. It's like the first half is the slice of life. The second half is the magic, you know, you know the, the action of the story. Yeah, and even in that first half where it's the slice of life, you still see how scary a place Arkham is with uh, Scarecrow stabbing uh, White in the hand in the lunchroom, um, Riddler... Uh, but was it who uh, a Mad Hatter and Two Face getting into a fight in the cafeteria? Um, Killer Croc escaping, and, and well, that was probably more the second half. But yeah. I mean, you you see that there are things there that are very scary, but yet you also see that it can keep them contained to some uh, some extent, uh, unless things go really bad. It can run smoothly if given the chance. <laughs> yeah, but the problem is that it's just the Arkham guards and Arkham. You know, the controllers are, are just as corrupt as the rest of Gotham. Yeah, which is a part of Gotham that I am not super uh, excited about. I, I feel like we need something in Gotham that is not corrupt. And a lot of times, everywhere you look except for the Bat family, it's corruption. And I kind of would like to see something other than like Jim Gordon seems to be the only thing in the police department that is never corrupt. Yeah. Um, it, I just at a time would like to see something that is working alongside Batman. That's not corrupt. And it, it's kind of frustrating when everything in the, the Gotham universe, the Batman universe is corrupt outside of Batman. It, it does become a caricature of itself, unfortunately. So, yeah, I, you know, and I agree. It, it definitely becomes frustrating, but it also is the crux of Gotham. It is the character of Gotham, you know, and, in this instance, well, in any instance, really, 
Arkham is its own character. It's its own entity. It, it exists as a character in the Batman universe and in the DC universe. So you feel like Arkham in this story was a character? I think I think the Asylum itself is a character. I think in any Batman story involving Gotham, it's a character. Because I, it is. It's, it has its own personalities. It has its own nuances. It's got all the corruption. It's got all this, these things happening that are only happening in Gotham. In, in some stories, I would agree with you. But in this one, it felt to me like just a setting. It felt like... All the the impetus of the story was driven by the characters. It wasn't actually driven by the place. See, and I think, and I agree with this uh, to a degree with this story. This it's more of a place, but still, these are things that can only really happen. Or I'd like to think can only really happen in Arkham, making it a unique setting in so much it becomes a character in and of itself. You like you want to say something, Kate? Um, I think you're actually both right here. I um, I feel that Arkham. Like, this can't happen without Arkham Asylum being the way that it is. Um, and so, in that, in that sense, it is a character in and of itself. But at the same time, it, the story could have happened in a different place. I think when... when I, I agree with you, and I think that's kind of a... I almost want to say that's a bad point, because it, it makes it less Arkham... Asylum living hell makes it more Gotham living hell. Yeah, I would, I, I would definitely agree with that. I think that if we got maybe a little more character to the institution in this, then it would have been an even better story. I, I can definitely agree with that. And I, I'd like, I lo- personally, and this is just my personal taste, I like it when the setting is a character. I like it when the setting drive at least partially drives a story in a, in so much that it is a character driven story because this is the the nature of the setting. This is, you know, this is Murder World. This is Gotham. This is Metropolis. This is, you know... Coast City, Central Coast City. Coast City, Central City. Uh, uh, Savage Lands, you know, and of course I'm mixing my DCs and my Marvels here, but the when the things that are happening are so unique and so um, domed, not domed off, but uh, I don't know the right word for it, but basically when the... the, the self-contained? The, well, not even self-contained, but like it feels native to where it's happening. This authentic, it, authentic is definitely a word for it. But you know, the it's a Gotham. This is what this is Gotham. This is this is Hell's Kitchen. This is Savage Lands. This is Star City, or you know, Coast City or Central City. These are things that happen in this location. It feels like it's a setting. Those are my you know some of my favorite types of stories or favorite elements in the story where you feel like this is unique to this location. It feels like something that can only happen here. It adds authenticity, as you said, for me at least. Yeah, I, I can definitely agree with you there. I just feel like this one didn't quite reach that level to me. I, I hate to agree in general with you, John, but I, I agree, and I, I think, unfortunately, that has to move on this onto the bad parts. I, I don't know. It's a, a, a thing that, that it, it I think takes it's a away bad, from the story. Yeah, it, it does a little bit. I think it's a, a bad point we didn't identify separately. We just kind of lumped it in with the slice-of-life aspect. So yeah. I, I feel like the slice-of-life slice aspect is still... Good. Great, yeah. But the setting could have made it uh, more use of the setting could have made it even better. I think it can be a bad thing and a good thing at the same time. Yeah, I think that's where we've kind of come to. <laughs> that, that's the middle ground we've argued to. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that's the DMZ of John and Dylan right there. Yeah, and poor Kate standing right on the DMZ line, man. He's like, ah, North Korea, South Korea, ah. Yeah, he's helping each of us a little bit. Um, so let's move on to the next point, which is the new villain of the Great White Shark. I thought this was very well done. Um, 
there is a discussion I wanted to have here about whether this villain is created by other villains, created by Batman, or whether he is one of those villains that creates Batman. And this is one of those discussions that that people have had in various forms throughout comics history as far as where does Batman come from. And I tend to fall in that first camp here where this is a villain created by other villains. Whether or not those villains created Batman or Batman created those villains, I think this is kind of a second-generation villain where that first debate, however you fall on either side of it, the outcome of that then bred this villain in a in its own unique way. Well, and you're talking, you know, second, third order of effect here. Obviously, Joker is, depending on which backstory you believe, which origin story you believe, he's created by Batman. Uh, Two-Face is created by Gotham. Uh, you know, so it, it all depends on which, you know, which villain created him. But realistically, uh, Jane Doe, this is her initial showing, so we really don't know how she became Jane Doe beyond just her own psychosis. So it could be a Gotham slash villain created. I, I think he's a Gotham slash villain created uh, villain more so than, and even though he's not from Gotham, but Gotham and Arkham Asylum and the other villains are what made him who he is. It, okay. He was getting his face chopped off and, and frozen off by Jane Doe. He was being hunted and tortured by Scarecrow and Two-Face and all, and... Joker even says to him, you are the worst person I've ever met. Yeah, I don't really get where that was going because that's said to him a couple different times. I, I think it, it, it culminates in at the end when he negotiates with the demons because he says to the demons, look, you know, they, they ask him what makes him qualified to to negotiate with Kathuga. He says, look into my soul. What do you see? And they say, you're the worst person we've ever met. And these are demons. I, th- I think you ran into a, a, an aspect of telling, not showing at that point. Yeah. Because I don't feel like we're really shown that he's the worst person ever. We, we get it a few times, but nothing really so distinctly, you know, stand out that it's, it really defines him. I mean, to, to, to bring this into a, a, a real world comparison, if, if you want to go that route, or another medium comparison, um, this is the guy from Wall Street. This is... Um, Who's the star of Wall Street? Leonardo DiCaprio? No, no. Wall Street, the... Oh, um, it's like Michael Douglas? Yeah, Michael Douglas or Charlie Sheen. Yeah, this is the Michael Douglas character from Wall Street. Basically, greed is good. Yeah. Uh, does Do you agree with that? I can see that, yeah. I would, yeah. So Greed being his main of the seven sins. Yeah. yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I don't see how that is the worst thing ever. Like, I can think of a number of other sins that are worse than greed. I think it's, yeah, and there are, and there's other acts that are far worse than greed, but it's just the, the length at which he went to destroy other people's lives for his own benefit, I think, is what they're getting at. Yeah, I would say that there are different levels of greed, and it depends on what you allow your greed to let you do. Because if you allow it to uh, harbor other sins, then it can be the worst sin. Well, and you know, we get we get in the book where he, the the guy comes to him, says, "I've noticed discrepancies," and White just straight shuts him out, uh, shreds all the documentation, and it, the guy ends up killing himself. Yeah, to me, that's not on White. That's on the other guy. I yeah, I think that honestly, I hate to say, it, I think that was a poorly written part. I I agree. I think that was a very poorly written part, and that is the only only backstory to White that we are given outside of the courtroom. Yeah. To show that he is the worst person ever. So I feel like if that's what Slot was going for, he kind of failed on this. I, I agree. 
and it's it's disappointing because there's so much that I like about this book, but that's definitely a point that kind of stuck with me. Is that okay? We are told by at least three other people, including demons and the Joker, that he's the worst person they ever met. Why is it? You know, why are we only? They, they, there's plenty of room to show, uh, get, get to to make make space to show him being a horrible person. Do we really need Magpie getting that? The, the piece of glass. Do we really need uh, Humpty putting the glass back together? Those are two scenes, you know, that could have... Or, or the uh, conjugal visit with uh, Doodlebug and Magpie. These well, are, that was tied in with the glass, so... That was tied in with the glass. The only thing that we got... The, the only thing that came out of that is looping the cameras. And all of that basically... Well, and uh, those two with the piece of glass went and released the demons. So there was that aspect to it. Well, the, the glass didn't do it. It was... Uh, they use not. they use the glass for that mirror trick like you saw in the Brendan Fraser mummy movie to oh, yeah. to see down the 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 corridor. So it kind of sort of helped with that, but it wasn't really necessary. Yeah, they could have easily used that to show White being a horrible person, and as you said, showing not telling because we get a lot of telling and no show. Yeah, it it feels like that this was for this being the his origin story. There's a lot that happened before this to make him the bad character that we don't get to see. I I I feel like be telling us how bad he is ahead of time kind of diminishes what we see him evolve into during the story because he evolves into the great white shark through the events of this story. And I believe it at the end when he's trying to run Arkham from the inside in that kind of... Uh, uh, white collar, you know, penguin esque role of I'm I'm the head of the snake, and I've got these other people beneath me, or Raza Ghoul, head of the snake. Um, I've got these other people beneath me to do my dirty work. I believe that by the end of the story, based on what he went through and how he evolved, but I don't believe he's the worst person ever at the beginning of the story, even though we're told that. I agree, and you know what? He's just another he's another white collar villain that we have, and we have you know we have penguin, we have. Uh, R- arguably Riddler. I would say so. He doesn't really get his hands dirty. Mostly he's 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 doing theft type crimes with clues to compulsively leaving clues for Batman to chase him. Yeah, uh, arguably Two-Face could be lumped in depending on who's telling the story. Uh, he gets his hands a little more does. dirty. And, and that's what I said depends on because yeah. there's sometimes he's treated as like the, the ringleader godfather type character and other times he's very much the, the doer. It depends who's writing it. Yeah. Rosh al Ghul. I think the same thing. It depends who's writing yeah. it as far as how hands-on he gets. Yeah, So, but he's, a, he's another white-collar villain. And as I mentioned, in the future we get stories with him challenging the Penguin. He uses uh, the Tally Man as a, a, a means to deal with the Penguin and cause chaos and stuff. But yeah, he's very much a, another white-collar villain. That being said, he's a character that I, I ended up liking as a villain. I just wish we had more lead-up because I think he, I would have loved him as a villain. He's one of those people, like, obviously we went into post-Flashpoint universe at one point. He's one of those people I would have liked to see them redo his origin. Yeah. Make it better. Uh, Can you imagine what they could have done with one more issue? Tacked it towards the beginning? I I, I don't know. I mean, it seems like, it seems like there's, there's something there, but maybe there wasn't. Maybe Dan Slott had the transformation portion, and then he's trying to figure out a way for other people to believe 
and this was kind of what he came up with. Yeah, unfortunately. Also, if the book is based around Arkham Asylum, then you can't really have an issue that shows what happens before he gets to Arkham Asylum. True, good point. I think you'd have to filter it through a couple issues with more flashbacks, and yeah. I think we were approaching the a few too many flashbacks in this one. <laughs> okay. Um, j- just, just a few. I mean, it, it seemed like the right amount, but it seems like you add in another one or two in there because you get Doodlebug, you get a Mig, um, uh, Humpty Dumpty, not amygdala, and you <laughs> get Cash. And honestly, the Cash one, I think, was kind of the weakest of the, the flashbacks. I agree. I think they could have done it much simpler, much quicker. Now, well, they already explained everything, and then you get a flashback, which, yes, paralyzing him in fear, I understand why the flashback kind of was situated there. But I don't feel like it was really necessary to convey that. So maybe less flashbacks, or, or the same amount of flashbacks, but better quality flashbacks. Yeah, remove, say, the cash flashback and give us one of of him doing something more than than what we saw with that with the accountant guy. I mean, even something cartoonish like like buying an orphanage to shut it down and sell the land for a profit or something. You know, something something undeniably even cartoonishly evil, but that we'd expect to see from a guy like White. Yeah, I would agree with that entirely. And I don't have a problem agreeing with you. <laughs> that makes one of us. <laughs> you don't like it when I agree with you? <laughs> I don't like agreeing with you, John. I don't like Cade either because he agrees with you too much. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think I think we've discussed uh, Walter White, uh, Warren White <laughs> yes, enough. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. you got me doing it. Um, we'll move on Victory. to the, the mix of the minor villains here. And uh, you, we've already talked a little bit about Jane Doe. So let's just get that one out of the way and kind of... Uh, summarize all that stuff we've, we've already been talking about put together. You you liked her relation to the, the Batman 66 character of, of uh, Flatface? False face. Uh, False face. Oh, I, I don't so much association, it's just that it made me think of it. It's like, oh hey, this is kind of a, a new take on a old school villain just done a lot better. Well, now here was what it, it brought to mind to me is in the Nolanverse, we're kind of given this more set in reality um, Batman universe. And to me, this character of Jane Doe would be how the Nolanverse would portray someone like Clayface. I, I could see that. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I, I almost think they, because they did shy away very heavily from superpowered villains in the Nolanverse, there weren't, weren't any superpowered villains, were there? I mean, the closest we got was Scarecrow with his fear toxin. Yeah, and that's not really a superpower. No, it's more science, but I mean, that's like the, the, the farthest he went. Yeah. Like, everything else was very well grounded. And I feel like Clayface would be something he wouldn't tackle because it's not, it's not grounded. Yeah, I could see them tackling Clayface like this. It'd be very interesting. Or, uh, no, I, I wouldn't even say Victor's ass because Victor's ass is still a very grounded character. Yeah, I, I don't think there's anything but out of the ordinary there. I, I, but I think like a, more of a serial, serial killer angle than the you know, uh, powered angle. Yeah, it, she is a serial killer, exactly. like Zaz. I mean, I think I'd want to see her as Jane Doe in the in the verse, and having you know Batman actually having to do detective work, which we really didn't see much of in the Nolan verse. Yes, that is true, and I I agree with you. Like they wouldn't, I don't think they would give her the name Clayface because no. they don't want the association. So they would treat her, excuse me, treat her as Jane Doe, not as as Clayface. But I'm saying the analogous. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely well-steeped villain in Batman lore would be Clayface. I, I agree. I think, you know, honestly, I'd love to see that, but as you, as we said, Nolan wanted Batman as a brawler, not as the, the detective. Yeah, which is fine. I, I think there's a place for that, and I think those movies were enjoyable. Um, it, each author, each uh, creator tackles a different aspect of the character, and he chose not to tackle the detective aspect. 
I'm going to take an eight-year break because I'm sad. Oh, yes. Sad Batman. <laughs> sad Batman. <laughs> I'm, I may have a few qualms with that. the movies. I'll sit, leave it at that. I can tell. <laughs> um, were there any of the other characters that you wanted to talk talk about, like Junkyard Dog, I mean, uh, Ventriloquist? I, I, I kind of liked uh, Death Rattle. I love that they, they took apart how he did it. They, they basically pulled back the curtain a little bit and humanized him. He's not a psychic. He's... Just really good at getting Junkyard Dog to work for him. I didn't like Death Rattle. You didn't like that? No, I thought he was... I I thought there was was much more to him than than possibly could have been fleshed out with what we already had in this story. That if you're going to create a character like that and you're going to treat it right, he needs to be explored in another setting. Because didn't he also die in this story? I think so, yeah. So I, I know Junkyard Dog dies. I don't remember if Death Rattle dies or not. I thought he was the one who volunteered, or was that Junkyard Dog? Uh, Junkyard Dog had his heart ripped out. Okay, so he, I think Death Rattle was the one who volunteered and jumped into the, the pit first. Yeah, I could see. I, I, I hate to do it, but I agree with you on this one as well. He, I think it would have been better to leave him. I think he could be a very fun character to explore. I think I agree with you, though, on the aspect of what you saw in the character. I just don't feel like it was fleshed out enough. I, I agree. Yeah, this this was really interesting in that this was the first appearance for many of these characters. I feel that they all could have gotten a little more loving than they did. I did really like Ventriloquist. Um, I liked the appearances of... Uh, Mad Hatter has always been one of my favorite villains. <laughs> just because he's he's crazy and unashamedly so. That's a good point. I like that. But we did have Two-Face, Joker, Scarecrow. I mean, we've got established villains in here, which I really liked. Um, but we've also got these new ones that seem to be created for this so that anything could happen to them without leaving a mark in the DC Universe. Yes, I can definitely see that. And once you told me about all these people being their first appearance, I immediately lost a great deal of respect for the story that I had when I thought these were established characters that he was using so well. See, I, it almost gave me more respect because Dan Slott created some amazing, maybe one-off, or you know, which I I wish they weren't one-off, or uh, some really cool villains that I'd love to see more of, like Jane Doe. I think she's probably my favorite villain out of this story, honestly. Well, and the ones that survived, yeah, I do want to see more of, but a couple of the ones that died, I want to see more of too. Exactly, and then, and that's the sad thing is, like you said, Kate, it's these are some really cool characters that get obliterated because they don't want to leave a mark on the DC universe by killing off a big name. Yeah, I think this is one of the points I have to agree with both of you on is that Dan Slott did awesome in creating these characters we want to know more of, but it is also kind of a slight on the book that he had to come up with new characters in order to do this stuff that they wouldn't let him do with established characters. Batman is from what, uh... 40s, 50s? 39. 39. So 39. So we're talking about a character that's had some goofy villains in the past, let's face it, especially Bronze, Silver Age. So we we could have had some updates, I agree, Cade, with the, some updates to some of the goofier classic villains, made them more you know modern and, and thrown them in the story, because quite frankly, these are characters, villains that aren't being used at all, haven't been used for a number of decades, that so you could throw in Arkham Asylum. But like I said, I did love some of the the one the new characters. Like I, you know, I keep going back to, excuse me, uh, Humpty Dumpty uh, and 
uh, Jane Doe. I lo- we both, all three of us love Humpty Dumpty. I think we all love Jane Doe. Yeah, I, yeah. I love Jane Doe as a character. Um, and like, I would have loved to see Death Rattle and Junkyard Dog get more fleshed out stuff. I I would have preferred if they hadn't died, and maybe we got another. Uh, Arkham Asylum book by Dan Slott, a sequel to this, which, in which maybe they did die in that one, but after we had more establishment, and if we cared more about them, then it would have been a bigger emotional hit. I, I just I feel that these characters were so well made; there could have they could have done more with them. I agree one hundred percent, and that is very true. It is kind of a slide on the book because it's like, oh, these guys died. I had no care about them. Okay, uh, I thought he was kind of cool. Oh well, guess he's dead forever. Now, so I'm going to jump into maker mode for a second. Uh-oh. Uh oh. Junkyard Dog and Death Rattle were in the same cell at the time of the breakout, I believe, right? Uh, no, Junkyard Dog was with Doodlebug. Doodlebug. Okay, so that that ruins that theory. But they <laughs> they did both escape. So they they both escape from their cells. They meet up. They escape Arkham. They go out on a buddy criminal story, <laughs> and they die in the buddy criminal story shot by police. That would be kind of awesome. Th- that, would, that would be incredible. And you have very different characters. You have the scavenger junkyard dog, very eccentric and crazy. You have the much more solemn, dark death rattle. So it'd be awesome, you know. I, I wouldn't call it a buddy comedy, but kind of a buddy comedy. Well, they aren't buddy cops, so they got to be buddy criminals. Yeah, buddy criminal story. <laughs> the, the buddy inept criminal story. <laughs> there you yes. go. Yeah, they become the wet bandits from uh, Home Alone. <laughs> oh, jeez! Wow, wow! What a pull! <laughs> <laughs> wow, reaching way back there, John. <laughs> All right. So uh, the last point we have is the intricate story. So it's focused on the world Batman inhabits, but not Batman. Of course, we, as we discussed, Batman does show up. To the detriment of the story, we kind of... Yeah, unfortunately well. to detriment. But as I, I think we've already discussed this one a little bit at length. Well, I just got lightheaded. Hold on. Well, I, I think the aspect that, that we, we haven't discussed is, is the amount of threads. I mean, we've talked about them individually, the amount of threads that are in this story, but just how he intertwines them. Like, it feels a tiny bit chaotic in that last issue, but you don't ever feel like you're completely lost. So he did a really good job of taking all these threads and not really dropping any of them, which we've seen with some other stories where they start a thread and then it just kind of drops off and never gets picked back up again. It feels like he had a goal with this story and he, he really accomplished it. Now, there's aspects we didn't care for, as, as we've talked about, and there's aspects we feel he could have done better. But I think he did an amazing job with the amount of content he had for a six-issue miniseries. Absolutely. I feel that Dan Slott is a phenomenal writer, and I may not like every book he's done. I, I hated Superior Spider-Man. Really? Yeah. Uh, wow. Can... No one likes Spadok. I love Spadok. <laughs> I love Spock. Yeah, Don't I... call him Spock. It's Spadok. It's Spock. <laughs> No, I went into lengths about this on the View from the Gutters one. I was the only one there who didn't like the book. But I've got to hand it to Dan Slott. He is an incredible writer. Even if you don't like what he does, he does it well, whatever he sets out to do. Um, and like we talked about the like lead-ins to No Man's Land, we're... Like we don't really know if that was editorial breathing down his neck that he like had to put some ex- explanation in front of that, or maybe it was one of his original ideas that made them greenlight the project. 
Yeah, and then he just never got to finish it because he had so many other ideas. You never really know what's going on unless you can sit down and talk to the person. That's a good point. But, no, there were absolutely a lot of threads that he never dropped. He, It feels like he had his mind 100% on this project when he was doing it. That being said, uh, Dan Slott, if you want to come on, we would love to have you. We can do Skype. We can have you come up to uh, Olympia, Washington and hang out. Pet the cats. Pet the cats. Check out all four of my cats. We have a spare bedroom at my house. You can crash in, and we have cold beer. So, hey, Dan, come on down, brother. Yeah, I'm going to tweet this at him. Please do. I, I, <laughs> I am 1,000% I am sincere here. If Dan Slott wanted to crash at my pad and record a podcast with us, I would be more than happy to, to host him. And now that the pandering section is over... <laughs> Uh, uh, Cade, why don't you start us off with your final thoughts on the story and give us a rating out of uh, five and then pick some adjective that fits with the story or noun that fits with the story. I really liked this book. I would, for personal reasons, I would name it a five. For critical reasons, I would say a four. So why don't you just average that for your rating? then? So four and a half then, if that's okay. Okay, and and why? I'm curious why the uh, better rating is a personal uh, rating. Because one of the things I really like about Batman villains is the neuroses involved. I like the the psychedelic trips. I like thinking about or well, that that was about to sound very depressing, but <laughs> I like how intellectually thought provoking the neuroses of Batman villains are. And that's why I would say that getting to look at this many Batman villains in Arkham Asylum where they belong. And we have the, uh, the therapy sessions with the doctor who's turns out to be fake, but then we do have flashbacks to the real one. It, it just gives you more to think about it. It gives a more humanizing aspect, at least in my eyes. And so, for me, that makes it a better book. But I can look. I can also look at it critically and say, "Oh, well, there were some things that were not done, you know, one hundred percent to give it a five out of five rating." And so, for those reasons, I would say it was a four. I, I still think it was a great book, and I would recommend it to almost anybody who really likes Batman, especially Batman villains. Yeah. All right, thank you. Uh, so, Dylan, what are, what are your thoughts? So real quick to touch on what Cade said, uh, a good friend of ours and fellow podcaster, Eric uh, Mannix, who does Out of the Fridge podcast, he said, loving something despite its flaws is, so, is, is allowed, as long as you acknowledge that it has flaws. So, you know, once again, uh, to reiterate a lot of what Cade said here, it's, a, it's something I really enjoyed, and I love the Batman's villains and and the awesome neuroses and the psychoses and thinking on the different mental aspects and as someone who really loves psychology it's really cool to see some of these played out and as a you know someone who who kind of you know casually studies psychology just you know as a passing it's it's really cool to see a lot of these neuroses and and psychoses catalog and demonstrated in a you know obviously exaggerated way for story purposes but it's still it was a good book just it definitely had its flaws that being said, I definitely enjoyed it, and it's something I would like to see almost as like a an annual or something that every couple years they go back and check in on the Arkham Asylum and tell tales from Asylum. With its flaws, I'm, I'm going to give it a four shots of lithium out of five. Four shots of lithium isn't that something you inject? Not not 
shot? Injection is a shot. Oh, that type of shot. I'm thinking. <laughs> wow. Uh, or, you know, hey, if, if you got it, do it. You know, hey, Joker probably would do shots of lithium. Hey, do you. That's all I can say. <laughs> do you. All right. Um, I have to agree with you guys in, in a lot of what you're saying. That aspect of the story, seeing, seeing the inner workings of Arkham, seeing the villains and how they operate on a day-to-day basis, I absolutely loved. Um, I don't like mysticism. Um, but having talked this over with you guys, I feel like that's kind of gotten pushed to the back. I feel like it is an element of the story, but it is such a minor element of the story compared to all the other elements that I think my rating is actually going to be higher than it was coming into it, which is something Dylan and I have had a couple times when discussing various story arcs is after the discussion, we feel better about the story than we did going into it. So that's that's a case in podcasting in general that always happens. It's not until you talk about something with your friends that you actually have a better understanding of what was going on. Oh, yeah. The same thing happened with a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles story arc we did. I told that story at the uh, Olympia Comic Book Festival podcast uh, video cast podcast we did. Um, It's something I went in tepid about and came out after discussing it enamored with it and think, oh, wow, this is so much deeper and so much more fun once you talk about it. That being said. Go start a podcast. Go talk to your friends about something you love. Create something magical. Pick up a, a cheap pen mic from from Best Buy or whatever, fifteen bucks. Download Audacity or whatever program. Use your you gaming need. headsets. Yeah, use gaming headsets. <laughs> Go talk about something you love with your friends. Create create content. Create a podcast. All right. PSA over. Back to uh, my my thoughts. Um, I I don't think this is something I would return to read periodically just because that one element I don't like does overshadow it a little bit for me. But I think if I, if I have to give an objective rating of it, I would say uh, four out of five straight jackets. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, so that would mean our overall rating is four out of five. So we had two fours and a four and a half. A four, four and a quarter. <laughs> they don't do quarters. No, I know. Yeah. So, so we'll call it a four. Yeah. It, it rounds down to a four, unfortunately. So that being said, Please, if you guys had it, what did you guys think? Like it? Love it? Think we're crazy and belong in Arkham ourselves? Please leave any comments or questions you have on the episode page at thebatmanuniverse.net. While there, be sure to check out the Batman news, commentary, reviews, and podcasts that the site has to offer. If it involves Batman, it's on thebatmanuniverse.net. And if you like our style, I know we've mentioned it a couple times already, we do another podcast called Arc Reactions Podcast that follows the same format but we'll do any and every comic book that, that we think we can talk about for an hour. Also, be gu- guys, be sure and check out View from the Gutters. They're a local uh, Washington State podcast. Awesome content, awesome people, absolute insanity. Most of them belong in Arkham themselves. And uh, I know, realize there's been a, quite a bit of promotion on this one. We, we do want to bring on other friends for other episodes. Maybe not quite so much promotion on those, but... Uh, we will be bringing in a third person occasionally to this show if if they want to join us. So you can look forward to that, hearing another perspective besides ours uh, on occasion. Our lovely dulcet tones. Um, let's finish this out with the credits as we normally do. What? Arkham Asylum Living Hell was a six-issue miniseries published from July to December 2003. Written by Dan Slott. Art by Ryan Souk. And the editors were Valerie... Dorazio and Dan Raspler and I apologize to Valerie because I butchered that name. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. Be sure to join us next time on Bat Books for Beginners, episode 137. Uh, Officer Down? I think it's Officer 136. Down. Uh, episode 136. 136. I yeah. believe it's Officer Down. Yes. Yes.